It's time for episode 95 of Love That Album podcast. Morris is delivering a second jazz mystery box episode, but is flying solo this time. He will briefly discuss three jazz albums that loom large in his record collection, focusing on the history of the records, the music itself, and why these albums are important. This is not an episode for jazz purists. Morris is just a fan of the very wide umbrella that the term jazz gives shelter to. Check these albums out if you have not already done so, and investigate further to more great music. Eric Reanimator's Album I Love segment weighs in on the subject as well. He discusses the soundtrack to the Mike Figgis noir film Stormy Monday. So, whether you love Latin, freak out on fusion, or give over to Groove, this episode should have something to keep you going. Dig it! my life, man. What do you want me to do? speaking welcome to episode 95 of love that album podcast glad to have your company thanks very much for joining me now normally i'm joined on these podcasts by someone else on the other end of a skype connection who i'm able to talk about some great music with unfortunately this time uh, my partner who was scheduled to be for this program charlie of the stinking pause podcast is not able to join me real life has intervened real life has stepped in and kicked him in the backside and said nope you have other commitments so uh, unfortunately i'll be doing this show by myself charlie i hope everything is going okay at your end and you'll be able to join me on a show sometime in 2017. so anyway what is the theme of tonight's show you might be asking well you probably already heard because joanne Witten announced it in the opening of the show but i'll repeat myself because i like being redundant what the purpose of tonight's show is to do a jazz mystery box program now this is the third mystery box show overall i think and the second jazz mystery box so for those of you who may not have quite caught up with the back catalog the whole point of the program is for me to pick three albums and just give a bit of a brief talk about each one rather than sort of yabbering on for an hour like uh, i normally do with a partner about uh, you know one particular album but uh, I've picked three jazz albums that I want to talk about. And if Charlie had been available, then we would have spoken about six albums altogether. I do have some thoughts on the albums that he's chosen, but I'll leave those until uh, the next time we do a Jazz Mystery Box episode and he can speak about those albums and I'll discuss those albums with him at a future date, hopefully sometime early 2017. So for tonight, I'll just briefly talk about the three albums that I've chosen. And I call it Mystery Box because I know what they are, but you don't. Keep listening and all will be revealed over the course of the program. I can tell you one album that will be talked about later on in the program. Eric Reanimator has uh, chimed in with a jazz album of his choice. He's going to be talking about the soundtrack to a film, and I've forgotten the year, I think late 1980s, which featured Sting and I can't remember who else. Well, well anyway, it's a noir film called Stormy Monday, and it was directed by Mike Figgis. 
and there's a rather an excellent soundtrack. So Eric is going to talk for a few minutes about his love of that album and you know, maybe talk a little bit about the film as well. So uh, that'll be on sometime later in the program. So before I get on to talking about the uh, albums that I've chosen for this Joe's Mystery Box, we'll go to a quick break. Joanne will give you the contact details in case you wish to join the Facebook group or you wish to send me an email. I'd love to hear from you. And uh, then we'll get on with talking about some great jazz albums that uh, may be new to you. I hope to be able to recommend some new stuff to you. Or if you're already familiar with these albums, then uh, hopefully we can... uh, I, I might come up with some new thoughts that you might not have considered about these great records and you can send me an email and say but you've forgotten about this or you've forgotten about that who knows anyway it's a nice journey it's talking about music that's what we're here for okay i'll be back in a couple of minutes you're listening to love that album episode 95 Hope you're enjoying the show. You can get previous episodes at either lovethatalbum.podbean.com or lovethatalbum.blogspot.com or search for Love That Album in the iTunes store. If you want to get in contact, please email Morris at rrrkitchen at yahoo.com.au. Join the Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash lovethatalbum and start a music-related discussion. every month as they discuss music-related movies. iTunes, Facebook or download direct from seehere.podbeam.com The See Here Podcast. It's a blast. Welcome back to episode 95 of Love That Album. Morris is my name. Thank you so much for joining me. And we're going to be talking a bit of jazz tonight. Jazz Mystery Box episode number two. If you want to go back to episode number one of the Jazz Mystery Box series, uh, it's only two episodes, hardly a series, I guess. But the first episode uh, of this concept of Jazz Mystery Box, uh, I think it's back in March of 2016, March this year, where I was joined by Terry Frost of Paleo Cinema fame. And we spoke about some cool jazz albums back then, but I want to lay a few more on you just in case uh, you want a little bit of information about some of the great jazz albums out there or you want to poke fun at how little I really know. And I should probably say before I start talking about the albums that I don't claim to be any sort of jazz expert. Um, I mean, really, when it comes down, I don't really claim to be any sort of music expert or academic or anything like that. I'm just a guy who loves his music and just wishes to shoot the shit about it. And uh, that's really the case with these three albums. So it'll be a little bit about my thoughts about the music, how I came onto the records, and why they should be in your collection and certainly into your life. And you don't even have to necessarily be a great jazz aficionado to like the albums that I'm going to be talking about. Uh, Let's see where we go. Anyway, so the first album that I'm going to be talking about is from the guitarist John McLaughlin, and we're going to be talking about his album called Music Spoken Here which came out in 1982.
This is an incredibly important album in my musical development. Uh, apart from my father's Louis Armstrong tapes, I'd had no real exposure to jazz till, I don't know, maybe the early 80s or so. Like many other people, I came to jazz through jazz fusion, and this album sort of sits in an unusual place even within the fusion genre. So back in 1982, I had a friend called Steve Passioris. Hey Steve, if you're uh, listening out there, hey ho. Um, I'll come back to Steve shortly. Uh, I think he wasn't overly impressed with my record collection at the time. Uh, we were studying together and one day he brought me this epiphany. Uh, he introduced me to the album Friday Night in San Francisco by John McLaughlin, Al Demiola and Pacadillo Chia. Strange thing about listening to that album at the time was, I was okay. I was guess I was definitely interested in the music, but really, as a teenager who was interested in things like Speedy Fingers, I was absolutely gobsmacked with the guitar technique. Uh, you know, sure there were guitarists who I'd heard who could play tons of notes per second, but never three guitarists at once, or never on acoustic guitars. At least not in the music I'd been listening to. And really, the one thing that I kept thinking at the time was, I didn't know you could play an acoustic guitar like that. Uh, so looking back into the history of these three gents produced some interesting results. In a way, it was more about Demiola and McLaughlin entering De Lucia's world, I think, with the music often having a strong flamenco bent. Flamenco fusion, let's call it. Without wanting to really state the obvious, John McLaughlin had done a ton of things. He'd really already gone and lived probably three or four musical lifetimes uh, through the 1970s. And, you know, certainly by the time I got to him, he was no stranger to fans of great guitar music. Uh, and you know, certainly if you had a piece named by Miles Davis in your honour, then you're obviously going to be something very special. And that piece is on the album Bitches Brew, which it took me many, many, many years to actually sort of understand. I wouldn't even necessarily say I still understand it, but I have an appreciation for it now that I didn't in the uh, 1980s. I certainly wasn't ready for it then. But anyway, McLaughlin was primarily known for his work with uh, Miles Davis and the Mahavishnu Orchestra and the East Meets West beauty of uh, the group Shakti. He'd also made some really fantastic records in his own name. By the early 1980s, he'd made two albums for Warner Brothers with the band that he put together. They were called the Translators. Uh, and this included his girlfriend at the time called Katiella Beck on keyboards and an amazing drummer who I really, really admire, a guy called Tony Campbell. Lebec frequently worked with her sister Marielle, both playing piano, and I remember seeing them perform in Melbourne, uh, basically each one on a, on a grand piano, a beautiful grand piano, and they were doing um, a two-piano arrangement of Gershwin's Rhapsody in Blue, amongst many other pieces that night, but absolutely stunning piano playing. But on this album, anyway, she's playing synthesizers and other keyboards as well as some piano, uh, sort of augmenting uh, John McLaughlin's own playing. I confess I hadn't listened to McLaughlin's previous album for Warner Brothers, uh, Bella Horizonte, in a long, long time, and but I do remember I wasn't as drawn to it as much as this album, Music Spoken Here. So Music Spoken Here was a curious album in that it had most of the elements of an electric jazz fusion record, but for whatever reason, McLaughlin chooses to play gut-strung guitar, not acoustic. Uh, it's an unusual stylistic choice when fusion was all about the electric guitar, but even more so for the man who probably made his name with it. Still, with Shakti and having played with Al Demiola and Pacadillo Chi as part of his history, he was obviously interested in combining the fusion skills and discovering how an acoustic guitar would work in this context. And for me, it certainly does to a really, really great degree. Uh, the album is not about the more gentle meandering experiments that uh, Al Demiola would do like a few years later. He released an album in 1985 called Soaring Through a Dream, and he actually released another album, I think the same year, which also had more of an acoustic guitar bent. I can't remember what the name of that was. Maybe, I think Cielo Etera 
but soaring through a dream was with a band and i could tell he was sort of really maybe being a little bit more influenced by the more ethereal sounds of someone like pat Metheny. but this is not really what john mclaughlin is going for here uh, this is an album that sounds electric and very fusion-like, but McLaughlin just happens to be using an acoustic instrument. Uh, of course, a result with an electric guitar with a sustain built artificially in an amplified tone would have produced a very different album, a very different recording to the one that we have here, with notes played in a very short staccato fashion quite often. Uh, make no mistake, though, McLaughlin and Lebec are often playing at breakneck speeds, that one expects on a fusion album. This is not traditional jazz. It's still very much musically what McLaughlin was known for throughout the 70s, but just with an acoustic guitar playing out the front of a fusion band. Uh, the opening cut on the album is called Aspen. Aspen was later recorded by the uh, guitar trio McLaughlin, Demiola and De Lucia. certain points in the tune, Lebec and McLaughlin are playing note for note the melody in unison. It's absolutely incredible to listen to. Tommy Campbell is definitely, uh, I'd say he's evoking comparisons with Billy Cobham, who John McLaughlin had previously played with in the Mahavishnu Orchestra. And he has this wild, frantic style of playing that just seems to go all over the place, yet arrives where it has to go by the end. Maybe a jazz version of Keith Moon in a way. I first heard of the album while listening to the Sunday Night Album Show on Triple M here in Melbourne, hosted by the great Billy Pinnell, who's been on a couple of the early episodes of Love That Album. And uh, for those of you who don't know, please go back and check those episodes out. Billy's our John Peel. So when this album came out, he played a couple of tracks, and the one that had me playing strong attention was a tune called Blues for LW. LW was referring to Lech Walesa, who was the Polish trade union leader and later president of Poland. He'd been a hero during his trade unionist day, although I believe that there was a lot of opposition to some of his philosophy in his later years. This tune starts out with a very, very somber feel, a church bell at a funeral perhaps. And McLaughlin plays a very, very sad melody before the band kicks in. The, the keyboards, really, the other lead instrument, dual keys attack with Lebec and a fellow called Francois Coutier. I hope I pronounced that right. And it often sounds space-like on these early 80s synths. Overall, there's something really, really dark and somber about the track. And also yet, though, it swings, which is sort of unusual. Really like a lot of music on the album, there's a very cinematic quality to this tune, but it's film music demanding your attention. This is not to be ignored. There's a tune on the album called Honky Tonk Haven. sounds something like you'd hear out of a demented scene from a discotheque in a murder film. Maybe it would have worked well if they'd included that music in Blade Runner at some stage. There's also a tune called David. Mm. 
This is another tune that was to be reappropriated by the guitar trio later on. And it's also a beautiful, wistful highlight of the album that pulls things back a bit. It's beautiful without a lot of the moody intensity that you get shown elsewhere on the record. For me, the only track on the album that doesn't belong here is a track called Loro, the album's closer. There's another one called Vivian Clarendo, which is the side one closer. It's only 30 seconds long, and it does have a traditional style melody. Well, it's not like nothing else on the album, but its brevity indicates that it's an end of side one, go get some coffee and put on side two type of tune, sort of an announcement. Lauro is this sunshiny, happy piece. It's not bad. It just lies and it just sits there like an inappropriate happy epilogue to a great film noir and really i think the album can end just you know one track before that the album is sort of long out of the warner brothers catalog but it's i'm pretty sure it's been released on cd on some boutique label and if you go do a search on amazon or maybe in your uh, specialist cd shop if you're lucky enough to have one you might be able to find out what that label is i haven't looked it up but I've had my copy of the uh, vinyl or the record pretty much for over 30 years or something like that. And I'd recommend this strongly for, I guess, the adventurous newcomer. Uh, it's intense in places, but not as full on as his Mahvishnu or Miles Davis work. Even with the keyboards, it doesn't sound that dated to me. The melodies really shine through and there's improvisation, but there's also really, really great composition. And I'd say, you know, considering you know, how many albums McLaughlin has put his name to, that this is a highlight. I wouldn't necessarily say I've even heard a majority of McLaughlin albums, but I've heard enough to be able to say that this is a favourite. So we'll uh, finish talking about McLaughlin's music spoken here, and uh, I'll be back in a few minutes to talk about the next album. Hi, I'm John Water. Yeah, hi, this is Dolph Lundgren. Hi, I'm Lance Henriksen. Hi, this is Keith Gordon. Robert Pune. Miguel Ferrer. This is Nancy Allen. Robert Davi. Richard Elfman. Ileana Douglas. Patrick Warburton. Wingshauser. Cliff DeYoung. Steve Railsback. Mr. D. William Cass. If you haven't been listening to the Projection Booth podcast, you're missing out. Each week, the Projection Booth brings you in-depth discussions of some of the most interesting movies ever made. I'm Mike White. No, the other one. I'm the guy who wrote the film fanzine Cashiers to Cinemart since 1994. Since early 2011, I've been co-hosting the Projection Booth podcast. Try us, won't you? I never try anything. I just do it. Visit the Projection Booth at projection-booth.com. And we're back. Thanks very much for being here. This is episode 95 of Love That Album podcast. My name is Morris, and I'm talking about three jazz albums that I've picked just to talk brief form because I don't think I could talk about a jazz album for an hour or an hour and a half. However, I do have a few thoughts about these three albums that I've picked and hope that you'll enjoy what I have to say or maybe at least feel inclined to go search out the music if you have not already done so. Anyway, so album number two on tonight's program is a father and son combination. This is Ellison Branford Marsalis's album of 1996, called Loved Ones. the 80s, two of the six or so Marsalis brothers, trumpeter Winton and saxophonist Branford, started making names of themselves in the jazz world and, as it turns out later, in the classical world, although I don't think I've heard any of their classical recordings. Uh, Winton had started out in Art Blakey's Jazz Messengers. In my mind, that's the sort of badge of honour reserved for rock musicians who play in Frank Zappa's Mothers of Invention, sort of in a, a jazz equivalent. Uh, Winton had won admiration for his technique and his knowledge, but he also had scorn 
for his belief that jazz development had died by the early 1960s. For him, free jazz and jazz fusion were really not worthy of being considered as jazz. He was a consultant for the TV program Ken Burns Jazz and spent nine episodes or so, I think, covering 1920 to 1960, then one episode covering 1960 to 2000, if I recall correctly. But we're not here to discuss Winton. Uh, his brother Branford's outlook couldn't have been more different. If you listen to his albums as band leader uh, on albums like Trio GP or The Dark Places, you see that he did have a love for free jazz and and he loved impro and he thought that that was a really valid part of jazz development. Uh, his big crime in his brother Winton's eyes was daring to perform in Sting's first band, Post the Police, particularly on the album The Dream of the Blue Turtles. Now, like a lot of people yet to go down many jazz rabbit holes, I don't mind saying that this was an album that was an introduction for me to Branford. It's a great record, but importantly, it pushed me to investigate more Marsalis, which prompted me to find out more jazz in general. So, hey, how can that be a bad thing, Winton? Uh, while Winton appeared to be favouring more of a Duke Ellington style of composition, and that's certainly not a bad thing. He, he liked the big band sound. Branford was utilising more of the trio, quartet, quintet with a free jazz or a bop bent, a, a strong emphasis on groove. His group Buckshot Le Fonk had a, a, a real soul and a real groove feel. To be honest, I don't think I ever knew too much about their father, Alice, apart from him being a university lecturer in uh, New Orleans, probably the University of New Orleans. Uh, he'd played with guys like Cannonball Adderley, and apparently he'd been something of an adopted father to Harry Connick Jr. So as to the album that I actually brought up to talk about on the show tonight. So back in 1996, I was traveling with my wife Joe, and we were in Montreal at the Montreal Jazz Fest and one of the acts that I'd booked for was Alison Branford Marsalis out to promote this father and son effort called Loved Ones. Uh, the idea behind the album and the show was to play their favorite jazz tunes named after women. Plus, there was one additional tune that was dedicated to Dolores, the matriarch of the Marsalis family. I absolutely adored the show. Branford is Usually the sort of cat who's never short of some words, but on this night he respectfully stepped aside, leaving his father to do all the audience banter. And Alice entered and left the stage first, with Branford showing his father that old-fashioned respect. The audience hung on every note of every tune, which were all from the Loved Ones album. So as to the album itself, it's all stripped-back arrangements of classic jazz songbook tunes. Based on the number of albums that I've heard of Branford, this album is something of a peculiar choice for him to do, and I expect he was doing it more to uh, show some sort of respect to his father, as well as to pay some sort of tribute to the great jazz tunes of the past, because most of what he'd been known for was uh, flirtation with jazz progression up to that point in his life. And I guess my other choices on this show tend to reflect more of a modern jazz sentiment, but this is an album that I really, really love, and just thought I wanted to point your way. And the album is showing the stripped back beauty of just some of these really wonderful tunes. I've read some critiques that were a little underwhelmed by this record, which I also was a great shame. This album is full of gracefully played and beautiful arrangements of classic jazz songbook. It's really an Alice album with Branford guesting because, you know, he's not on every tune. There are some solo piano pieces on the album, and in fact the album opens with one such tune. The opening tune is called Delilah. Delilah is actually the theme from the Cecil P. DeMille film Samson and Delilah, which was composed by Victor Young. And the tune is stripped back to a piano only and a very sparse arrangement that's just absolutely gorgeous. He never feels like he has to prove anything. It's just about the simple arrangement and letting the beauty of the melody rule. There's some fantastic minor bluesy, minor seventh chords that are not out of place. He's taken the essence of the orchestral score and translated it well to this beautiful piano solo arrangement. Another great movie piece on the album is probably my favorite movie theme of all time. And if you're listening, Terry Frost, 
I don't think I'd get much of an argument from you about this one. This is uh, the theme from Laura, written by David Raxon. This was written for the Otto Preminger film called Laura. As it turns out, this version was my first exposure to the music, and I hadn't seen the film back in 1996. Of course, I've rectified that since then. But uh, yeah, this definitely holds its place as probably one of the greatest movie themes that I've ever heard. Raxon really composed a theme that demonstrated the Gene Tierney's title character really, really well. Breathtakingly beautiful, both her and the music but mysterious. The music changes from major to minor variations of the same melodic motif, then just get to an emotional high point that really slays me every time. Branford plays a melody on a soprano sax, then improvises in a way how he's really emotionally ensconced in the music. It's really fantastic to behold. There is no needless noodling. There is improvisation, but the emotional high points were known before going in. He understands what he's trying to bring out emotionally in the piece. Just thinking about this now, and I haven't researched it, I'd be fairly confident that Bernard Herrmann would have been listening to Raxon's score when composing Betsy's theme for Taxi Driver. I'd be interested to know if any of the listeners out there would think the same thing. Let's have a little bit of a contrast. structure if not the actual melody seem very very similar and Branford Marsala seems to be going for the same feel as the sax player Ronnie Long in the Taxi Driver music. The music on this album is not there to stretch you or to get your pulse racing. I do find it though a thing of beauty and grace. Grace is really the operative word. Uh, we get Branford and Ellis's versions of Angelica by Duke Ellington, Stella by Starlight, and Bess You Is My Woman Now from Porgy and Bess, and Branford gets real emotion from his instrument in these tunes. But I have a special love for their arrangement of Maria from West Side Story. <laughs> As much as I love that play and film, I was not always 100% sold on the lyric of this song. It's a little bit cheesy for my liking, but stripped back to Alison Branford just taking it melodically, uh, it, it just gives that tune its due and makes it a perfect rendition. Look, I could keep on sort of going on and on about how much I love this album, but let's just hear a little bit more music from it. Hopefully it sells you on it, and uh, you should go out and search out this album. It was originally released, I think, on Columbia Records, so fairly mainstream, fairly easy to uh, access on CD, hopefully if it's still in print, and uh, I highly recommend that you search this one out if you like to have something a little bit more laid back in your uh, jazz collection. So uh, what we'll do is we'll now go to another break after listening to a little bit more music from Father and Son Marsalis, and then we'll have a listen to what Eric Reanimator has to say this week about the soundtrack for the film Stalling Monday. And I'll come back after uh, that segment to uh, talk about one final jazz album for you for this program. You'll listen to Love That Album.
leader. Now it's time for an album I love with Eric Reanimator. Greetings, love that album, listeners. It's Eric Reanimator, back with an album I love, although this one's more of an album I'm discovering, an album I've kind of flirted with for a while. This is the soundtrack to the film Stormy Monday. Now, the soundtracks are something I usually talk about on the compilation edition. I happened to pick this one up en route to Nashville at the beginning of this month with one of those CDs I saw in the dollar bin that was calling out to me, so I had to snatch it up. It's interesting because the artists on this album are B.B. King, who we're hearing now. Uh, The Krakow Jazz Ensemble, who actually play a role in the film. And then the director, Mike Figgis, did the vast majority of the scoring for this particular album. Very briefly, the film is a romantic thriller, is what it calls itself, but... It's a noir. It's a neo-noir. It's from 1988, and it's set in England, in Newcastle upon Tyne. And it stars Melanie Griffith, Tommy Lee Jones, Sting, and Sean Bean. I discovered it because film writer Kim Morgan had narrated Roger Ebert's review of the film around the time that he passed away. And it's great. You should seek it out. I will, in fact, post the link on the Love That Album Facebook page. But let's check out the music, shall we? Let's listen to some of Mike Figgis' score music. The jazzy sounds that provide the atmosphere for the film.
I hope you can hear in just those few tracks the use of jazz as a traditional score or a traditional soundtrack piece mixed with the kind of thing you would find on a jazz record, a live album of somebody jamming, both in the, the structured jazz style and in a little bit of the freeform style. So moving on now, let's actually check out the jazz ensemble that's on this uh, album and in this movie. This would be the, once again, the Krakow Jazz Ensemble, who are in the film there to perform for a local Polish community. And let's remember, this is 1988 when Poland was still communist, so this is kind of a big deal. Sadly, there's just two tracks from the Krakow Jazz Ensemble on this album, one of them being the Star Spangled Banner, the other being that flute piece. As I said at the top, this is an album that I'm just now kind of discovering and listening to. It's one of those 80s soundtracks for half-remembered films that occasionally get pulled up out of the depths of the cinema wasteland. Not to say that it's a bad film, I recall quite enjoying it. But with so much out there, you see something, you think, yeah, I'll get to it eventually. As with so many films and books and records in our lives, I guess that's how it goes. So I guess we're going to close this out with a little more of the uh, music from Mike Figgis, the director. It's been Eric Reanimator talking a little bit about jazz. You guys can all catch me on the Facebook. I do YouTube videos featuring uh, records and stuff. If you're interested in that, head on over to the Love That Album Facebook page. Otherwise, I'll catch you all next month. Podcasts last over three hours. You have no concepts of time! Balaban Studios presents. A stinking pause. Take your stinking pause off me, you damn dirty ape! Starring Scotland. Yeah, be prepared for me to have a little bit to say about that one. And Charles. If Leslie Grantham can do it, then so can I. <laughs> Oh yeah. <laughs> the Stinking Paws Movie Podcast, available on iTunes and Stitcher Radio. Hotter than any uncurbed passion since last tango in Paris. There's the Facebook group and you can follow us on Twitter at Stinking Paws. You've never laughed more at sex or a picture about it. And download all our episodes stinkingpaws.blogspot.co.uk Welcome back to episode 95 of Love That Album Podcast. My name is Morris. Thanks for sticking around. I'm uh, blathering on by myself, something I'm really not that used to. And my hats go off to uh, people like Terry Frost for doing his show every week.
by himself and I dip my hat to anyone else who does a podcast solo. It's a very difficult thing, no one to bounce off and it's feeling very, very strange talking into a microphone. Hopefully there are some of you out there who are actually listening to this, so I know that it eventually gets heard, but it's very difficult for me to be talking knowing that there's no one listening at this very moment who I can collaborate with. But anyway, I will proceed and carry on and uh, by the time we get to next month's episode i will once again have a podcast partner so anyway my final album for uh this show will be talking about an album from 2006 and it's a collaboration the album is under the title of modesky schofield martin and wood the name of the album is called out louder <laughs> This album sort of has a parallel to a collaboration that the man whose name I'm not really allowed to mention on this program, but I will anyway, John Hyatt, go back to episode two to find out why I don't really like to say his name on the program, but we will be saying his name plenty on episode 100. Anyway, uh, putting that aside, there was a John Hyatt collaboration when he released his album in 1987, Bring the Family, which is what episode two was supposed to be about. He recorded that album with Ry Cooter, Nick Lowe, and Jim Keltner. And the album was, you know, as I said, it was recorded by something of a super group in those four gentlemen. So later on, when they got back together, they formed a super group called Little Village. And you know, it was it was still you know, a fair amount of John Hyatt's own composition on that second album, but it was giving more recognition to uh, the other supporting players as they were really just one big group by that stage. In 1998, guitarist John Schofield recorded a, uh, I guess something of a jazz funk workout in his own name, but the backup band consisted of John Modeski on keyboards, Billy Martin on drums, and Chris Wood on bass. And when they next released an album, which is the one that I'm about to talk to you about, it was under the more equal name of Modeski, Schofield, Martin and Wood. They were no longer sidemen. This is a very equal collaboration. Let's talk a little bit about Modeski, Martin and Wood. Uh, so they formed in 1991. Uh, Modeski does play piano on some tunes, but seems to perform more on electric keyboards like the Hammond organ, at least the recordings I've heard anyway. Yet Modeski, Martin and Wood don't sound like your typical B3 Hammond organ combo, although I guess musicians like Jimmy Smith and brother Jack McDuff were obviously some sort of influence. They have a strong affiliation for Latin grooves and jam-based sounds and hip-hop. The first time I heard them was on a local radio program that was plugging uh, an album that they put out also in 1998 called Combustication. So it was obviously a very busy recording year for them. The tunes I heard, it didn't really impress me at the time because I was too narrow-minded to dig into the jazz meets hip-hop style. And it seems sacrilegious to me to think that it was out on Blue Note of all labels. A few years or so afterwards, I took a chance on a compilation of their pre-Blue Note years the album is called Last Chance to Dance Trance, perhaps. Uh, this album has some of the elements of hip-hop, but not as much as what I was hearing from Combustication. And I fell in love with this music. These guys all had really, really serious chops, but didn't sound like hardcore session musos. They were tight but loose, if you know what I mean. The music was all about serious groove, but with some sense of the weirdness as well, uh, making songs that had effects in it that Sun Ra would have been proud of. I can't quite recall when I first heard John Schofield, but he was a guitarist I'd heard and liked, but wasn't necessarily my top echelon, which seems rather insane when you consider that he'd played with circa 1980s Miles Davis, he'd played with Herbie Hancock, Jaco Pastorius, and one of my very big guitar heroes, Bill Frisell. He just had a really beautiful tone. It wasn't about playing millions of notes per second. Uh, like my heroes, uh, Bill Frisell and Pat Metheny, it was primarily about the sound and the tone. A very different sound and tone to those guys, but still something about that rather than playing millions and millions of notes. He obviously liked his blues and he had a real sense of groove and funk. I think probably the first album that I'd heard him on 
or the first album that I bought was a collaboration with Pat Metheny called I Can See Your House From Here. Check that one out if you haven't heard it, also on Blue Note. So anyway, a collaboration with Modesky, Martin and Wood seemed to make great sense. And they've now had about four or five, I think. Out Louder is the second recording that they've made, but the first one in the Modesky, Schofield, Martin and Wood name. If I had nothing else to say about this album, the main thing I'd want to convey is that these guys sound like they're having the time of their lives. This is a really, really fun record. Mind you, I imagine Modesky, Martin and Wood are always having fun, but have generously allowed John Schofield to be part of this and contribute to their gang. The music is cool party music. No overzealous instrumental chops, though I'm sure they're all capable of it. The opening cut on the record is called Little Walter Rides Again. Sounds like they're going for something like a meters type of groove. Billy Martin and Chris Wood chug along on their, you know, righteous, tight but loose funk groove. That doesn't sound like anyone's going to lose their lunch if it speeds up or down or slows down a tad. Schofield comes in with a nice little bluesy motif in a call and response with uh, Medeski at the organ. Music and groove first. I'm not really quite sure how they came up with the name of the tune, Little Walter Rides Again, because Little Walter is you know, more known, I guess, as a chess blues harmonica player, and it's not really that type of tune. As I said, it really owes more something to the meters. But uh, anyway, it's still a really cool little tune. If you sort of want to explore a more avant-garde side of what Modesky, Schofield, Martin would do, then there's a jam on a tune called Telegraph. <laughs> something of a psychedelic acid trip feel to it mixed with a bit of a dub feel thanks to the bass line laid out by Chris Wood an absolutely fantastic bass player there are some really weird organ effects which give off the uh, the trippy vibe and Schofield's guitar really lay out the psychedelic feel I'd love to have been a fly on the wall during a band conversation I'm sure Sco himself is digging, jamming with these guys, but I'd love to know what his suggestions to them are to push them in ways that they would not have otherwise gone without him. For those who like the loungy sort of jazz, there's the Latin jazz feel of tequila and chocolate, another great name. lounge with some hallucinogens courtesy of the trippy sound of Medeski's B3 and Schofield's flange on the guitar. I love Martin and Wood's samba rhythms that underline all that's going on here. Once again, fun is the operative word. You really need to keep that in mind while listening to this album. This is not jazz for purists. You got jazz jams, psychedelica, lounge, Latin. It's party music for people who like a soup 
combining the best of all these elements. It's all wonderful stuff, but there are two final tunes that I think are worthy of mention, and they're both covers. I adore a creative approach to covers, and Beatles covers done particularly well are something I truly appreciate. Just, I want to make a little bit of an aside note here. I was on a Facebook group that's uh, devoted to Beatles discussion, and I think one of the administrators of the group had gone and made mention that Beatles covers inevitably are never as good as or even come close to the Beatles original. Now, I can understand, you know, where Beatles music is held in sentimental regard to a lot of people, and really the Beatles, my entry point into uh, rock music, and I hold them near and dear to my heart, so near and dear to my heart that I can't bring myself to actually talk about a Beatles album on the show. But I thought that saying something like that it was a little bit narrow-minded, and unfortunately there were some people who went and chimed in with, yeah, that's right, cover versions suck, never as good as the Beatles, without actually sort of qualifying or clarifying why they thought that. And for those people, I'd like to present them with the tune Julia that's done on this album. Desky Schofield Martin and Woods version of Julia really makes the hair stand up on the back of my neck. Schofield and Medesky both have minimalist solos with strong bluesy tinges. Uh, for Medesky, imagine if Booker T was doing that and you sort of get a feel for how he's playing here. And it just wrings every possible drop of emotion out of the song. Instrumental covers of songs originally with vocals are you know, potentially dangerous territory. The lead instrument has to play the sung melody and it can sometimes sound, uh, well, shit is the word that comes to my mind, but not so here. Schofield adds little bluesy touches and a lot of imagination that really capture the essence of the song. It's the most serious moment on this otherwise party album, but it's absolutely beautiful and I never get sick of listening to it. I've heard this tune a ton of times. The album closer is Peter Tosh's Green Anthem, Legalize It. Changing the rhythm from rocksteady to samba and giving it a loungy feel. Rhythmically, I'd say the change is not only creative, but it makes perfect sense. There's some tasty licks from Schofield, but overall, and this is true of the whole album, it's a band piece. Rather than soloist and sideman, it's a true collaboration. So, I don't know, all I'd say to you is check this one out. If you can find it, there's actually uh, an edition of the album that came with a live album that they did. Might have been recorded in San Francisco. I can't quite remember, but that's also worthy of your attention. But if you can only get like the main album, it's still something that's pretty essential if uh, you like funk and groove in your jazz.
So we reached the end of episode 95 of Love That Album Podcast, considerably shorter than it was going to be, but who knows, maybe that's a good thing. You might have heard this episode in the one hit, maybe driving to work, maybe walking the dog, who knows. In any event, it's short, it's sweet, hopefully, and maybe you'll decide that you'll tune into episode 96 if you haven't been too upset or offended by anything I've said this time. So speaking of episode 96, that'll be in November 2016, and I'm going to welcome back to the the show, a man who's not been on for quite a while, and I'm talking about Ben Eisen, the host of the fantastic all-time top 10 podcast. November, actually, we'll be sort of swapping positions. We'll be uh, guesting on each other's programs. I'll be doing a show on all-time top 10 in November, and just keep listening to that for more details about what that topic is going to be, but it's an interesting one, I can assure you. But uh, I can tell you what we're going to be talking about on Love That Album. I often do albums by artists which are well-known, that's true, but I've rarely tackled any of the truly iconic albums and that's a little bit scary because there are albums that everyone knows and everyone has an opinion on and certainly things are just assumed and you sometimes wonder if you've got anything new to add to the conversation but Ben and I are going to take a shot we're going to discuss two Simon and Garfunkel albums in fact the two final Simon and Garfunkel albums they only had five not counting the concert in Central Park reunion album but out of their original tenure there were only really five albums and also I'm not counting the graduate soundtrack so the two that we're going to be discussing are bookends and bridge over troubled water and we'll probably sort of be touching on the early albums just to talk about their progression and you know really where they both went to after they recorded those two landmark albums so i'm sure we'll have a lot of interesting stuff to say Uh, maybe that's me being a little bit immodest i like to think i'll have something interesting to say about those albums and i know ben certainly will a huge simon and garfunkel fan and huge paul simon fan so we'll look into the history we'll talk about the songwriting techniques about how they worked as a duo with those gorgeous harmonies and hopefully uh, you know, we'll all learn something new or at least reinforce what we already know. Anyway, it'll kill a couple of hours. What more could you ask for? Thanks very much once again for listening. If you want to get in contact with me, go back to the beginning of the show. Joanne's gone and announced all the contact details, how to write or how to uh, join the Facebook group if you're not already a member. All I've asked is that if you've been enjoying the program, if you've gone through the back catalogue or you've even just heard this program, you know, you've decided that you dig it, please let your friends know that the show exists. Um, you know, I don't exactly want to take over the world. I don't need thousands of listeners, but a few more would be nice. So uh, if you can let some of your music friends know anyone who loves to listen to a good tune anyone who likes to hear some people blather on about good tunes then please let them know that love that album exists i would be much in your debt one final thing that i'll say is because i'm recording this in late october that means that the end of the year is just around the corner and we've had a bit of a tradition on this program for the last few years of doing an end of year favorite recordings not necessarily favorite albums of the year although they're not excluded obviously but favorite first time listens of the year and so this year will be no exception if you out there have decided that you want to have a part in this program you want to send me an mp3 talking about your favorite first time listens of 2016 be they new albums be they albums from 50 years ago either one is good if it's a new experience for you then it's worth talking about so i'd be honored and i'd be grateful if you wanted to send me a little mp3 or an email saying what your favorite first time listens for 2016 were just send them to rrrkitchen at yahoo.com.au or get in contact with me we'll organize something and uh, i'd love to be able to play your feedback on the program so we'll be doing maybe one maybe two shows in uh, december to talk about favorite albums of the year i'm going to regather the shooting the shit crew and uh, we'll be talking about our favorite first time listens of the year but if i get enough feedback i might sort of put together a second program just to have listener feedback and uh, have uh, you the listeners out there say what it is that have been your favorite albums or first time listens of the year all right have i blundered on for long enough maybe far too long Never mind. Anyway, uh, thanks once again for your company. Listen to some good music. Listen to some bad music. Please let people know that the show exists. And we'll speak to you again in November talking about Simon and Garfunkel. Until then, all the best. Cheers.
It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.